light of infinite. There's this one kind of religious thought which now feels antiquated that teaches that a person should never fall into sin and that only in the purest state can they reach unification with the divine and all the blessings that come with it. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was controversial in his time and had so many people that rallied against him because he shined a light on the profound spiritual elevation one can reach because of their fallen moments. We see throughout the Torah, and especially through the temple sacrifices, that in a moment of sin, we have an opportunity to draw close to Hashem, to God. This is why when the temple was destroyed, the rabbis instituted the daily tefillot, the prayers, so that Jews would still have a way to elevate themselves, including in those fallen moments. In the Talmud and in the Zohar, prayer is called requesting mercy. The Mitzvah Rebbe teaches that requesting mercy is a general and inclusive matter, broader than a set prayer time. In any moment that we face misfortune, we may request mercy of Hashem. The Talmud states that all the laws of the seminal prayer of the Amidah, also called the Shmona Esrei, the 18 silent prayers, are derived from Chana, who was embittered in her soul and prayed to Hashem and wept and cried. When she reached a profound level of humility and lowliness, an embittered spirit, she prayed to Hashem and requested mercy. This is the mindful and all-encompassing state of humility that one must develop to unify with the divine. As it's written, I poured out my soul before Hashem. This is why prayer is called the outpouring of the soul. Rabbi Nachman teaches that at times we may feel far from God because of our past transgressions. But it's then that we must remember that there cannot be a perfect prayer without us, even when in the moment of despair. As we learn from the Talmud that every prayer that does not include the sinners of Israel is not a complete prayer. We see this in the recipe of the temple incense, the Ketorah. Among the 11 spices used, there was one very foul-smelling ingredient known as the galbanum, the chilbana spice. Chazal, our sages, explained that the galbanum had a very foul odor on its own, but when it's included amongst the other 10 ingredients, the fragrance transformed into something very pleasant in the context of the other 10 spices. This is one of the transcendent secrets of the temple incense. Tefillah prayer is our modern-day offering to our Creator, and just as the incense offering was not complete without the galbanum, if we are burdened with our transgressions, we have to know that the prayer service cannot be complete without us, as we are. It is in this moment that we must flip our transgressions into merits, praying to Hashem, praying to God for the unlimited mercy with heartfelt love and fear of Hashem, saying to oneself, as Rabbi Nachman teaches, just as this foul-smelling galbanum is an essential ingredient of the sweet-smelling incense offering, my tainted prayer is a vital ingredient in the prayers of all of Israel. Without my presence and prayer in the minyan, the prayer is deficient, just like the incense without the galbanum. In those times, we have to meditate on the thought, I am the perfection of the prayer, the galbanum in the incense. Hashem created the twin pathways of Shabbat and Teshuvah, meaning to return, before even creating the world. And the first commandments we were given after Hashem took us out of Egypt, which He was essentially waiting to give us, were indeed Shabbat and Teshuvah. Teshuvah is reached through korbanot, sacrifice, and tefillah, prayer, through the power of speech channeled into elevating the fallen sparks of creation. Similarly, Shabbat has the power to elevate the mundane physical into a supernal spiritual state. In fact, all of the blessings we say during the week are derived from those that we say on Shabbat. Shabbat is the only specifically Jewish ritual mentioned in the Ten Commandments, and the one commandment mentioned in the Torah more than any other. And again, this week we are commanded to keep Shabbat in this Torah portion. There is no more elevated bridge between this world and the next. It's a moment in our finite time and space when our soul feels tapped into the infinite, 
The splendor of Shabbat is truly ineffable. And we read, Hashem said to Moshe, saying, And you speak to the children of Israel, saying, Just observe my Sabbath, for it is a sign between me and you for your generations, to know that I am Hashem who sanctifies you. Rashi adds, And although I charge you to command them concerning the works of the Mishkan, do not view things so lightly so as to push aside Shabbat because of that work. Shabbat is referred as Shabbat Shabbaton, the repetitive term indicating the importance and the deep rest we are meant to take on Shabbat. The Hebrew word nofesh, resting, is related to nefesh, spirit. So the rest of Shabbat is not about sleeping or lying around, but tending to your spirit, bringing stillness and peace to it. The unification of soul and body, of finite and infinite, is achieved in returning the fallen sparks and elevating them to their source, to the light of the infinite. The Kabbalah teaching around the parasha, around this Torah portion, dive deep into anger, repentance, and redemption through the permutations of Hashem's name. Hashem literally means the name and is a euphemism for the Havaya, the Tetragrammaton, yud ke vav which is never spoken as it appears in the Torah. The permutations of God's name give us clues into understanding aspects of God that are generally concealed. Before jumping into the first verse from our parasha, from this Torah portion about Pinchas, understanding a couple verses from Shmot from Exodus is key. Ehiyeh asher ehiyeh, I will be who I will be, replied God to Moses. Then God explained, this is what you must say to the Israelites. Ehiyeh, I will be sent me to you. And I will take you to myself as a nation, and I will be to you as God. You will know that I am God your Lord, the one who is bringing you out from under the Egyptian subjugation. Here we see the various permutations of Hashem's name and the power that each contains within it. The one name that we do not speak out loud, also known as the Havaya, is Kulo Chesed, fully kindness. The second name, Elohim, is Gvura, strength, judgment, and the name Eheyeh is the mediator between those two. This is why Hashem commands Moshe to tell the children of Israel that Eheyeh has sent him, the God that balances strength and kindness, judgment and mercy. Sforno explains that Eheyeh Asher Eheyeh was how Israel understood Moshe as saying that Hashem has a completely independent existence from ours, not subject to the cause and effect reality that we live in. The understanding is that Hashem loves existence and all beings that exist, and anything or anyone that counters existence is going against Hashem. This is why Hashem says through the prophet Ezekiel, I do not desire the death of him that dies. It's clear that Hashem loves righteousness and justice, the objective of both being the continued existence of all who deserve it. On the other end of this, God also hates injustice and cruelty, the vices that destroy the existence of the victims of these vices. And so Hashem must hate the violence and cruelty perpetuated on Israel by the Egyptians. The children of Israel's freedom from Egypt and redemption into the Promised Land is our story that we are commanded to say every year at the Passover Seder. But it is also the story each person struggles with throughout our life. Our struggle to free ourselves from elements of our own slavery and constriction and to bring ourselves to a state of redemption, our own promised land of freedom. Further in Shmod in Exodus, Hashem, God uses both his names, the Havaya, the Tetragrammaton, the one associated with Chesed, and Elohim, the one associated with Gvua, with Dinim, with Judgment. Directly after using these names, Hashem says, And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your God, who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. Rui Nachman explains that these two psukim, these verses, are the secret 
of personal redemption, as the combination of chesed and gvura is how one attains da'at, ultimate knowledge, wisdom. Loving kindness or judgment by itself is incomplete. Balance, knowing when to use each trait is key. Tempering one over the other and the ability to know when to use each characteristic is da'at. In the Talmud it says a person should always draw closer by means of his right hand and push them aside with the left hand. In the tense Filot, God's right hand represents chesed and his left hand is gvura. In our relationships with each other, our emphasis should be drawing people and friendships closer with chesed, but only pushing away in a sense with gvura so that each person remains an autonomous individual. A constant balance must be at play. With someone who is independent, show them that love creates bond. But with someone who is dependent, show love with restraint, maintaining healthy boundaries in the relationship. This balance creates the middle path of tiferet, of harmony, beauty, compassion, which is associated with the heart. The word tiferet is derived from the Hebrew word pe'er, meaning beauty. The more we can unify and harmonize judgment and mercy, the more beauty we can reveal in this world. There are two ways in which to use your right and left hand. One would be by placing them both on something, say pushing something uphill, in which both acts as one in a way that neither can do alone. The other would be when the dominant hand hammers in a nail or chisels a stone, while the less dominant hand holds the nail or stone in place. This is a way in which chesed and gevura could act simultaneously toward the same goal, exerting force in opposite but complementary directions. Hashem's main purpose in the creation of the world is chesed, but without gevura, we would be robots or slaves. The relationship we have is not that of master and slave, it's of parent and child. We are meant by our own free will to serve Hashem, much like a child who wants to give to or help his parents. Imagine a parent carrying a bunch of things in their hand and a small child asked to hold one small thing that won't really have an effect. In fact, it might make it even harder for the parent to stop and rearrange what they're holding. The child knows that it isn't a big help, but it shows a lot of love. That is the sort of relationship we have with Hashem. There are two acts that we can actually complete for Hashem. One is giving to the poor. We've previously spoken about Hashem's love of the poor. In fact, the poor's temple sacrifices, though much more insignificant, of course, in size or amount, are loved more by Hashem. So you might ask why the poor are not taken care of in this world if Hashem loves them in this way. The reason is that it's our job to partner with Hashem and fulfill the mitzvah of making sure they are taken care of. It's similar with the Brit Milah, with circumcision. Avram's original covenant with Hashem. One can ask, if it's a sign of our covenant with Hashem, then why would we not be born with it? The answer is because it's our job to take a physical action and create the covenant. Partnership literally seen on the body that we have taken part in and taken personal action toward. Guarding this covenant that we have with our Creator, constantly striving to overcome our physicality is a perpetual struggle. But the ups come from the downs, and learning that dance while staying hopeful and connected even in despair is the key to eventual redemption. Prior to repentance, a person is said to be in the state of Ehiyeh, as in Ehiyeh Asher Ehiyeh. Ehiyeh is the permutation of Hashem's name that is correlated to Gvua when written as such, Aleph, He, Yud, He. Ehiyeh means to wait. It's a pause in a moment, a preparation of being, but not yet an attained state of being. When someone wants to convert to Judaism, we are taught to push them away, as if to say, not yet, take a pause. Be sure that it's what you want, that it's something that you would die for, and then try again. It's the same with drawing close to Hashem. You'll find stumbling blocks. You'll find yourself being pushed down the ladder time and again. But as you fight to climb up, 
you get closer in a real and deep sense. Rabbi Nachman teaches that embarrassment is the essence of repentance. And Rab Natan goes on further, pointing out that under the Egyptian bondage, the Jews were not yet a nation. To acquire being, they had to first experience the embarrassment of bondage and bear it in silence. The stage of Ehiyah, and only then could they acquire Havaya as a nation. The stage of Yudke Vavke, of the Havaya. The Tetragrammaton, the Havaya, is the name of God which denotes the level at which the past... Haya, the present, Hoveh, and the future, Yehiyeh, are one. This name also denotes the creative power that constantly sustains the universe. Now we could jump into the first verse of this Torah portion. God spoke to Moshe, saying, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my anger against the children of Israel by avenging my vengeance against them. I therefore did not destroy the children of Israel in my vengeance. It is said that the justice of man is harsher than that of Hashem. Therefore, when Pinchas pursued Zimri, the divine judgment ceased not only against Zimri, who instigated evil, but against all Jews who had sinned. Rashi explains that since the Torah never repeats itself unnecessarily, when it says that Pinchas is the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, it must be to emphasize something since it has already established this lineage. Rashi says that Pinchas is clearly tied to two priests, especially Aaron, to ensure that his behavior is seen from a place of righteousness, that his intention was to create peace. Had the verse not connected him to Aaron, one could connect him to his father-in-law, Yitro, and argue that the act was not inspired by righteousness for the sake of heaven, but by his own selfish wrath rooted in idolatry, which is part of his ancestry. Rashi articulates it as such, because the tribes of Israel ridiculed Pinchas, saying, have you seen the descendants of Puti, meaning Yitro, whose mother's father fattened calves for idol worship, and yet he killed a leader of one of the tribes of Israel? So that this would not be given an air of truth, the verse repeatedly and explicitly traces lineage to Aaron. The Kliyakar points out that in the verse it says, He zealously took up my cause among them, emphasizing among them so that it is known that he did his deed among Zimri's tribesmen and relatives, and that his act was one that put him at great danger. Pinchas proved in this courageous moment that he was acting for the sake of the Torah and the Jewish people and had no other interest in mind. Only from this truth was Pinchas celebrated. But the Kutzker Rebbe points out that despite that, he was still invalidated from being a leader of the Jewish people, which Moshe had initially wanted. When Moshe saw Pinchas's zealotry, he knew that while Pinchas was holier than others, he lacked the traits required to be a leader someone who must conduct themselves with moderation and flexibility. So his act led Yahshua to becoming Moshe's successor. Darizal points out that the term vengeance is mentioned three times in the verse about Pinchas, and that the numerical value of the root of this word that spells out Kuf Nun Aleph is 151 and is derived in three ways. First, the numerical value of the divine name Ehyeh, when spelled out using the letters He, is 151. Second, the numerical value of the name Ehiyeh individually squared is also 151. And third, the combined numerical values of the name Elohim and Adni are 151. Ehiyeh, when spelled out as such, is symbolic of the fulfillment of latent potential. When you square the name to get 151, it looks like this. Aleph, 1, He, 5, Yud, 10, He, 5, which is 12 plus 52 plus 102 plus 52 which is 125, 125, and that's 151. 
Rav Moshe Wisniewski expounds on the second permutation of Hashem's name and its numerical correlation to vengeance in the Pasuk in the verse, explaining that the squaring technique is called Ribua Prati, individual squaring, meaning summing the squares of each letter that makes up the word. Squaring signifies maturation and development because squaring a number makes that number interincluded with all its constituent units. An interinclusion is the characteristic of maturity to see all sides of an issue and grant validity to other people. In Kabbalah, the maturation of the Sfirot from individual points into Pagsufim, persona, faces, or forms, is the process which marks the transition from the chaotic, unstable world of Tohu to the rectified world of Tikkun, which is done by tracing it all back to its original source. The last of the three are the combination of the names Elohim and Adni. To break down the gematria, the numerical value, we have Elohim, which is Aleph, Lamed, He, Yud, Mem, which is 1, 30, 5, and 10, and Adni, which is Aleph, 1, Dalid, 4, Nun, 50, and Yud, 10, which is 65 plus 86, which also equals 151. Elohim signifies Hashem's attribute of judgment and severity, while the name Adni signifies his attribute of authority and dominion. Adon means master or ruler. Adonai means my master. The two names signify two types of courts. Elohim is that of strict judgment and is associated with the Sefirah of Gvura, and Adni correlates with lenient judgment associated with the Sefirah of Malchut. When these two divine attributes are combined, it could produce anger, and so the rectification of anger involves tracing these two attributes in the soul ridding them of the shell of anger in order to reveal the goodness of the soul. In other words, being judgmental, meaning acting like a court, is the source of anger. And the lesson of Azamra, that is the core of Breslov teaching, is to rectify judgment by finding the good point in yourself and others, and to judge it favorably, bringing merit to yourself and to others. As we covered in the past with How to Never Get Angry, that chapter, even though there is no explicit prohibition against anger in the Torah, it is considered one of the worst sins, which the sages compare to idolatry. If one's amuna, faith, and bitachon trust are strong, a person will realize that all is for the good, so there's no reason to get angry. Anger signifies that a person believes that they know better than Hashem, which is likened to idolatry. Judgment isn't intrinsically negative, as it's needed in order to discern between good and bad decisions. Only when judgment takes over a person does it become a negative force, eventually resulting in anger and violence. That's why we meditate on the names of Hashem and use our speech to moderate and mitigate judgment with mercy. Some people associate God with the high holidays or synagogue, but the deepest connections and feelings of closeness to the infinite light are in the moments of despair, riding the ways of life, the ups and downs, navigating one's own fortress of solitude and the judgment that one has on others and even themselves, as it's written, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. All faith stems from the trust that not only are we not alone, but that all is for the good, even though it may not be revealed as good in those moments. God will continue to lift us when we fall and forgive us when we fail. It's hard for us to understand the chiyut, the life that we are able to bestow on each other by simply showing each other authentic positivity. Rabbi Nachman teaches that a person must judge everyone favorably. Even if someone's completely bad, it is necessary to search and find some modicum of good, the little bit of him or her that is not wicked. And by finding in them a drop of good and judging favorably, one brings them to return to the true path of their Jewish soul. 
The through line of all the previous Torah portions is that our service of God, especially the sacrifices, should be done with a generous heart. Service of the heart is also the through line of Tehillim, of Psalms. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wound. Rabbeinu Rabbi Nachman continues and explains that a person needs to cry to their Father in heaven with a powerful voice from the depths of their heart. Then God will listen to their voice and turn to their cry. And it may be that from this act itself, all doubts and obstacles that are keep coming to them from true service of Hashem will fall from them and be completely nullified. One of the central lessons of Likutei Maran is the Azamra. Confronting these dinim, these judgments you fall into, and working to sweeten them with Hashem's name, elevating the fallen spark. This is not something that you learn once and do once and master. It's done over time, as lasting and true change happens layer by layer. As Rabbeinu says, even a little bit is also good. The way to grow is to not worry about perfection. Simply start moving a little bit beyond where you are or where you were moments ago. We are meant to emulate our Creator who mitigates the judgments and applies mercy as often as He can. It is the only way to continue to get back up when we fall, to show ourselves and each other mercy. And it's this choice of mercy using the right hand of chesed that elevates us to the infinite light. Confucius must have been in Uman around the same time as Rabbi Nachman. As he said, our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.